This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Hi and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson. It's lovely having your company here today. On the show we talk all things property or at least as much as we can squeeze into this half hour format. Normally a bit of local news, national and sometimes international. Certainly discussions on the market which are really prevalent in the media at the moment. I source most of my information from uh, news that's available, of course, online and just bring that together for you just to summarise some of what's been happening. And the first two articles that we'll talk about are actually from in and around Palmerston North. The first article, which appeared just uh, yesterday at the time of this recording, was by Janine Rankin and it says, Staged Kiwi Rail Project Leaves Residents Waiting at the End of the Line. Condemned to purgatory, that is how Bunnythorpe resident Aaron Fox is describing the plight of the private landowners likely to be trapped in the headlights of KiwiRail's proposed freight development on the outskirts of Palmerston North. Landowners are in the process of being notified of KiwiRail's decision to designate 177 hectares between the airport and the village of Bunnythorpe. Now one way that I try to imagine how big that is is a hectare is the size of a rugby field or a soccer field, probably a hockey field as well. So 177 hectares uh, between the airport and the village of Bunnythorpe. It's a really sizable piece of land. So despite the recommendations of the City Council and the Resource Management Commissioners who heard the notice of requirement in 2021, Rail is insisting on a 15-year lapse period it has also confirmed it will not be looking to purchase private and rural properties at the Bunnythorpe end of the site for at least five years. So that's a bit of news that uh, we were previously unaware of on this show. And, and uh, Mr Fox said that that's robbed landowners of control of their properties and the ability to develop them or sell them and they're really relegated to the role of tenants. And it is sad to know that you're going to lose your home, literally, it's going to be demolished, and so how can you sell it? And of course, if they're wanting a 15-year lapse period, in Mr Fox's view, uh, he says possibly nothing will happen for 14 years. Kiwi Rail Executive General Manager for Property Olivia Paulson said the regional freight hub was a major project that would serve Central North Island's rail freight needs for the next 100 years, which is a fantastic positive. The 15-year lapse period was necessary because of the scale of the development, which would include freight forwarding and distribution centres for a range of operators. She said the project would be staged, with the earliest priority being to relocate the Tremainav rail yards to the city end of the site. There was land already zoned for industrial use at that part of the area covered by the designation. So the emphasis on staging the project came as something of a surprise to Mr Fox, who had read most of the evidence and watched most of last year's hearing and made an extensive submission in opposition. He said the master plan for the area had been presented as an integrated package deal. For example, one of the elements in the plan was to shift the main trunk railway parallel to Railway Road into the designated site and to close Railway Road. He says it's difficult to see that being done in a staged fashion. He said it appeared KiwiRail's plans were changing and were currently a better fit with the proposal that won $40 million from the Provincial Growth Fund for design and land purchases covering an area about 
one-third the size of the current designation plan. So when plans were first revealed in November of 2019, KiwiRail said it expected the centre to attract $2 billion to $4 billion of investment into Palmerston North, which really was fantastic. Fox said if it was just the rail yards relocation that was the immediate priority, KiwiRail should withdraw the notice of requirement and not land bank the balance on the site so people could get on with their lives. Anyway, that article there... uh, just for your interest, the City Council early advised submitters that the deadline for lodging an appeal against KiwiRail's decision was May the 9th. However, its website now states the indicative date for the appeals period to begin is May 26. We'll just have to watch that space to see how it develops. Uh, I was thinking things would be happening a bit sooner, given that the large project is very good for the local and regional economy. So they'll just carry on working through that process. I'll keep you updated with any any news on that. Another article that was quite nice, which was in the homed section of stuff, and the homed section has some uh, really good articles actually about things like interior design, uh, about uh, interesting new builds and those sorts of things, if that's something you're interested in. This article by Colleen Hawkes, and it's a Palmerston North lady, so that's why I thought I'd bring this to you. Teacher personalises her new build townhouse with amazing style and colour. And this is the sort of article, it was uh, written on the 29th of April, where you probably do need to see the photographs. But let me read to you a little bit about it. It says, Forget any ideas you have of new builds being soulless. A Palmer's North teacher shows just how personalised you can make a small townhouse. Deb Dickinson moved from Auckland in 2018 to be close to family, went searching for a place to buy. I found a little black and white picture of these units in Featherston Street and in five minutes I said I would buy it. I could see I'd be able to put my stamp on it. So Dickinson, who is currently teaching gifted children at an intermediate school, was helped by architect Monica Puri of 242AM's design. Puri says, four years ago it was the norm in the city to have standalone units with a high fence between each. We strongly believe that it was time to move away from this form of planning and explore different housing topologies, more in keeping with the growth strategy of the city. The housing should address street frontage, create a sense of neighbourhood and integrate with the urban fabric of the city. So consequently, each of the four units is a cruciform shape to maximise sunlight. High ceilings, courtyards and ability to create continuous open space are key features. Uh, 2 for 2 a.m. architecture have been doing some very good work uh, in and around the city. I've watched a few of their their developments. Dickinson says the light is amazing. I have to have light and the ceilings here range from 2.4 metres to 4 metres which is uh, pretty impressive. So what she's done is she's put a large mural that appears to be a hand painted black line drawing of faces is in fact a wallpaper uh, in the house. She's also got uh, the likes of um, some amazing uh, chairs, uh, a huge colourful chair with wingback covered in bright Mexican fabric. You'll have to see the pictures online. Um, she's got a wall art, which is a combination of pop and folk art. So again, if you want to look that one up, uh, she's got um, statues. She's even got a monkey holding a light bulb hanging from the wall. So it's pretty cool what you can do if you have a little bit of a flair for this sort of thing and you can look at... Uh, making something your own and um, and that's something where I just saw that article and thought oh good that's Palmist North lady um, doing some really interesting stuff there 
Going back to a little bit of the general market itself, and just recently you may have heard the government is pumping $1.4 billion into Auckland to prepare more land for housing. So this just happened recently that Housing Minister Megan Woods has announced a funding of $1.4 billion for infrastructure projects in Auckland. This is uh, to allow the construction of about 16,000 houses. The money's not used to build houses, but it's allocated towards projects across Auckland to build infrastructure such as pipes and prepare the land for construction. Woods said the infrastructure developments would also facilitate up to 11,000 new builds on private land adjacent to the Crown land. So the development would mostly be on brownfield land across the city, she said, which is currently owned by the Crown. And when the land, which is 181.8 hectares in total, is ready for construction, it will see 16,000 homes be built. A third of those new homes would be affordable houses for sale, which we've seen how that's gone in the past, but that's another story. Another third would be sold at market rate, and the rest would be state housing, she said. And these projects would see about 4,000 state houses demolished and the land cleared to make way for new houses. And when it's done, there would be 6,000 state homes built, which is an increase of 2,000. I'm not sure where they'll put the, all of those people in the meantime, but hopefully they've got a plan for that. So this funding's come from the government's $3.8 billion housing acceleration fund, which is focused on paying for infrastructure to allow greater residential developments. Many people moving to this country from overseas, of course, do go to Auckland, and it's uh, the areas that they're looking at doing this is around the Auckland suburbs of Mount Roskill, Mangere, Tamaki, Oranga, and Northcote. And so they think uh, that will provide... Uh, 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 the infrastructure for a lot more building and what sort of time frame that's going to happen uh, is not mentioned in that article so we'll just have to see where that goes. On that and in a similar article, this one article by Geraldine Can on Stuff Business says that New Zealand gained 27,000 homes last year while population growth hit a 31-year low. Uh, it probably doesn't surprise me about the population growth, by the way, uh, around people having children later and not allowing people into the country <laughs> so much. But nevertheless, uh, the headlines is what it is. Uh, New Zealand gained 27,000 new homes last year while population growth hit a 31-year low. So according to this article, they're saying while supply was going up, demand stagnated. Um, and that's according to Statistics NZ data. 7,500 more people left than arrived in the year ending January, driven by the departure of about 10,100 non-citizens. And that net migration losses reversed a long-term trend that continued to the year ending January 2021, where the country gained 25,000 people. So it's a fundamental shift in the supply-demand equation and house prices, as you may recall, rose roughly 30% last year. When Auckland University Professor of Economics Robert McCulloch reads the figures, he's reminded of a guest lecture given by a Harvard economist, Edward Glazer, in 2013. McCulloch says Glazer, who's regarded as the father of urban economics and an authority on housing bubbles, spoke about how housing shortages could trigger a price boom and even when supply caught up, price momentum could carry on. Even when you release supply, you still get this momentum. The bubble keeps churning for a year or two, McCulloch says. He says it's likely that last year's price rises has had a bubble dynamic and with house prices already down 4% this year, a correction may be underway. I'll talk more about the pricing uh, in an article coming up. 
But he also expects that the changes to the recent or the amendments to the Resource Management Act, which will allow for buildings up to three storeys on most sites and cities without the need for resource consent from that begins in August, will have a large longer term effect on housing supply. Now, I think that's actually a very good thing and it gives um, architects and designers more scope to create some really interesting buildings on um, and housing more people at the same time. So Velocity's data uh, analysed by James Wilson says that 2021's price rises, which occurred at the time when more people were leaving than arriving in housing supply, reflected market fundamentals had fallen away. He says record low interest rates had made borrowing so cheap people became more focused on getting their hands on properties than the prices that they were paying for them. The relaxation of the loan-to-value ratio requirements at the start of the pandemic also played a part in in this price rise. He says it's the fuel and the fire effect, so making the money so much cheaper as a response to COVID creates excess demand for properties, trumping the amount of new stock being created. But when the cost of borrowing goes past a certain point, people pay less attention to the price they're paying and more on just getting a house. Uh, It seems a little ludicrous to say that, but that's how the market tends to act, he says. So calculating the housing shortage is difficult, but Infometrics took a crack at it in late 2019 and estimated the country was 30,000 to 40,000 homes short. Infometrics principal economist Brad Olson said the shift to migration losses last year was significant, and even with the natural population growth from births in the year to September 2021, the population only grew by 0.4%. Again, quite a lot of that will be to do with people uh, not, not coming in. There had been, the year before that, a record 2.4% population growth with the new fast-tracked visa programs, and many of those new arrivals were adding to buyer demand. So that's really one of the factors that's been taken out of the market. So what's going to happen? Is it a bubble that will burst? Well, probably not. I mean, the market hasn't collapsed. Uh, A colleague of mine just went to see Colin Bagri, the economist, talk this morning at the time of recording and Colin Bagger was saying in the last 18 months the market's gone up 40% so even a drop of 5-10% to 10% means it's still gone up 30% and that's something to uh, remember and that's something that's quite important when considering what's happening with the market. But there is pain coming for some buyers as the interest rates are now back to where they were pre-COVID. They are still relatively low but Wilson says a lot of people who jumped into the market to buy another property are going to be feeling pain as their fixed-term interest rates roll off. But he doesn't expect a market crash, he says, because the banks have acted responsibly and swift reimposition of the LVRs meant there is a lot of uh, meat in the pie, he says, in terms of money invested in homes. The requirements for most first home buyers to have a paid a 20% deposit and most investors 30 to 40% means the spectre of homeowners having negative equity is unlikely, unless prices go off a cliff, which there's no signs uh, that that's going to happen. So the housing completions have been slowing, and this is something which anecdotally I was aware of because it's been hard to get materials. But in this article it says the uptick in the number of new homes being built appears to have stalled this year with only 6,990 completed to date. Auckland's roughly on par, but uh, some areas it's harder to get those things done. So it's really going to just see where the market goes there. And this article here by 
Ella Bates Hermans from uh, from Stuff talks about the debt to income ratios being unlikely to stop buyers in the short term. Now banks, like any business, want to charge as much as they can, but the new debt to income ratios are unlikely to stop first home buyers from entering the property market anytime soon, commentators say. The Reserve Bank indicated this week that the rules which limit how much people can borrow to a certain multiple of their annual income were at least a year away. The restrictions are used in other markets around the world, such as Britain, where borrowers must have a loan no bigger than 4.5 times their income. The Reserve Bank has previously suggested it could cap the amount borrowers could spend on a home to seven times their gross income, and some banks already impose their own limits, or have done so. Its most recent financial stability report showed about 8% of first-home buyers were borrowing with a debt-to-income over 6 and a loan-to-value ratio over 80%, and more than 20% had a debt-to-income ratio over 6 times their income and a loan-to-value ratio over 70%. What this can happen then is as interest rates increase, if those people have purchased at a time where they got very low or historically very low interest rates, Uh, The small sounding changes as interest rates increase actually make really quite a large uh, difference to their payments. But this article is talking about the debt-to-income ratio, which means the ability to lend. So when they were lending that a bit higher, um, there were a number of cases anecdotally here in the Manawatu where people had been pre-approved up to about 1.3 million uh, by their lenders, only to then be told they've changed that debt-to income ratio and they could lend about eight or nine hundred thousand and that's a big difference when it comes to buying a house or um, being removed from the market uh, so to speak if that's something that's pretty hard. You've heard me probably say on this show a number of times before that the one or two market is something special and despite the headline of uh, the article I'm about to read out Manawatu is in a very strong position. So I just thought I'd preempt it with that, but here's the article. Cooling housing market, in inverted commas, will leave no region untouched. Just reading between the lines here, a cooling housing market doesn't mean a market that prices are dropping. However, this is a property investor, Matthew Ryan, who's providing his predictions for the housing market as prices fall and auction clearance rates drop. I think it's down to 18% in Auckland. So it would actually take a 30% decline in house prices this year for prices to return to the level they were relative to incomes before the pandemic, ANZ economists say. Now that's across the country. It would actually have to be considerably higher here. So ANZ economists are predicting a 10% fall in prices over the year to December. They're not saying where or if that's – I believe that would be nationally – they say that prices have dropped nationally 4.1% since November last year as seasonally adjusted prices have now declined for four months in a row. So going back to that statement by Colin Bagri, if it's gone up 40% in the last 18 months and then drops back a bit, really um, you're still in a very good position. So most, so that 10% price fall that the ANZ economists are predicting, that would constitute actually a soft landing for the market and would still leave prices 30% above that pre-pandemic level. So 
Matthew Ryan feels a tight labour market and building wage pressures should put a floor under household incomes and the housing market. And there's no shying away from the fact that mortgage rates are well above their pre-pandemic levels and listings are back at 2019 levels. A lot depended on a robust household sector to hold it all together and the risk of a very hard landing in housing would come from a household income shock. And that's where it's unlikely there'll be a major change. But the bank's economists also looked at markets in 14 key regions and they found all had strong housing demand and constrained supply in recent years which drove double-digit price increases. The degree of Price increases varied significantly and the median sales price in Gisborne was up by 60% annually at its peak last June and in contrast Southland's median rose by 25% at its peak and here um, Manotu Wanganui was about 33 I think was, was at the peak. But Zona, who's the um, economist says that all regions were now on a cooling trajectory, although some were more convincingly cool than others. Auckland, Bay of Plenty, Hawke's Bay and Otago were well off their peak, while in Canterbury the boom was still winding down. It's uh, pretty good there. He says that all regions appeared susceptible to weaker price increases over the year and that she says they don't forecast prices at a regional level, but they wouldn't be surprised to see annual inflation turn negative for a time in all regions. Now, uh, Manawatu, um, we've got a lot of people moving here still and, and that's where it is actually a still a very busy market and uh, however, there's no doubting there are more properties for sale now. The asking prices that we're getting to be a little bit out of this world, uh, vendors are having to bring those back a bit but still on an annual basis the prices are rising or the sales prices are rising. This article by Miriam Bell says weak sales and prices prove housing market slowdown is here. So again, this is based on national figures saying New Zealand has a buyer's market sooner than expected with house volumes at the weakest they've been in a decade. Now the, uh, and that's where you know, the writing is on the wall a little bit and those uh, lower number of sales and uh, slightly lower prices in some areas are just showing that things are slowing down of course. And in fact, in Wellington, another article by Jared and Can talks about how a year of capital gains have been wiped out in Wellington as house prices drop. And that's, uh, you know, we will start seeing these sort of headlines, um, but again, it's probably a bit of um, scaremongering. But here's something that's really quite interesting, uh, just changing the subject a little bit, but still on the, I guess, the general subject of housing affordability. This article says, Bank of Mum and Dad pumps billions into property market. And uh, this by Brianna Micklewraith on Stuff Business. Apparently, well not apparently, data suggests that the bank of mum and dad have pumped billions of dollars into the property market. And Consumer New Zealand's research found parents had doled out $22.6 billion in loans based on the 208,000 parents supporting their kids financially to buy a property at some point in the past with an average contribution of $108,000. Now, by comparison, ANZ Bank has just over $71 billion in current lending to owner-occupiers. So the most common form of assistance was contributing towards a deposit, with more than half of parents helping in this manner, and three out of five parents did not expect to be repaid. In 2002, the average house price in New Zealand was, believe, hold on, don't, you better uh, sit down for this one. In 2002, the average house price in New Zealand was 186000 which was six times the average income of 29000 per year. In two, 
2022, the median house price has risen to 890000 which is 15 times the median income of almost 57000 So Consumer New Zealand spokesperson Gemma Rasmussen said the bank of mum and dad was now more pivotal Oh, sorry, pivotal. <laughs> that was a new word, pivotal. Let's just say more pivotal in the first home buying process. But it also meant that there was a greater social divide around who was able to buy a first home and who was not. She says, we've reached a point in New Zealand where it's no longer enough to do all the right things to buy your home, to get a job with good income, save furiously and then cut back on the nice-to-haves. She said 80% of parents either offered to or were happy to help their children get on the property ladder. There is recognition that a first-home purchase isn't as straightforward as it was 20 years ago, and that's why so many parents are happy to help. And the majority of parents, when asked, uh, dipped into their own savings to help the home deposit, but nearly one in four cut back on their own personal expenses to make the contribution possible. Of those who expected repayment, 82% expected to be repaid in full. So I'll just find out uh, what else is here. Auckland parents had it a little bit harder. Uh, on average, they lent $20,000 more than the national average. Now, it's not in this article, but if you cons- if the bank of mum and dad was theoretically a bank, they would be the fourth largest lender or lending bank uh, behind uh, uh, in New Zealand, which is quite, uh, quite incredible. So it just shows that uh, there is the money there to for people to lend and to and understanding that they need to help their, their children into properties. It is a sad situation, but nevertheless it is the situation that we're in. It's interesting to see that in the data. Uh, finally today, are New Zealanders thinking sustainably in their housing purchases? And you'd probably think, what's that all about? But more people are choosing to go green and buy sustainable homes, and experts say the trend will only pick up pace as these homes become more prominent. Recently, the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand brought out the Mega Trends survey, which says what's going to happen in the next 20 to 25 years in real estate. And quite possibly, there will be widespread government regulations and incentives to encourage sustainable practices, rising demand for green investments, and the normalisation of what used to be uh, niche buyer expectations, such as solar power. The mega report cites that, or mega trends report cites that in the United States research shows most buyers prefer to go green when given the option. It found 60% would incorporate passive solar design in their homes, while 66% would opt for durable materials. It also found buyers are willing to invest in features that help lower their utility bills, with the average buyer willing to pay as much as $14,000 New Zealand dollars more up front to save $1,000 annually on utility costs. That's some really interesting information there. Green Building Council Chief Executive Andrew Eagles says that five years ago between four and 500 new home builds went through the Home Star system, which rates health efficiency and sustainability of homes. But close to 6,000 homes will have gone through it this financial year, he says. Not only is that a 12% increase in four years, but with about 49,000 consents issued last year, it equates to over 12% of the new homes being built. And if those figures are looked at as a trend, the council is expecting a percentage of home star rated homes will increase to about 20% of the new build market over the next five year, uh, few years, I should say. Really interesting that uh, there are some properties that build to a six-star or higher ranking. Kiwi Properties homes are rated at seven or higher. 
it's very interesting to look up what they're doing here and uh, certainly it's something with regards to solar power and so forth. Um, you see sometimes on homes.co.nz solar power through offerings that we can click on a button and get a quote or an analysis. That's happened over 2,000 homes um, in recent times and on average homes that have got solar are selling for $35,000 more than comparable properties nearby. There's a lot of listings that have eco-friendly keywords such as EV charging, EV plugs, solar panels and energy efficiency rose from 20% from 2019 to 20 and then by another 14 from 2020 to 21. So would you pay more to have a home that's sustainable, uh, particularly if it saves you money? That's a question I'll leave you with because that's all we've got time for here on Property Matters this week. It's been lovely having your company. You can find this on MPR, Manawatu People's Radio, .nz. Te reo irirangi o ngā tangata o Manawatu and I'm Greg Watson. You can find me on Google. Thanks for listening. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.